welcome viewers. We're here at the 90 or Nothing podcast station and this is our first episode for the season. Uh, joined here with my co-host Kylie Barnett. How are you going today, Kylie? Good, Paxton. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Just keen to get this up and rolling. Yeah, me too. Be good. Yeah, at, we're aiming just to give everyone a bit of an insight to trainers and competitors and owners and how to get you a bit better at that camp drafting or cutting scene. Um, Kylie and I have gone through and interviewed a few people and really keen to bring it to everyone listening out there. Yeah, I just sort of feel um, both Paxton and I have sort of dabbled in both of the cutting and camp draft industry and we sort of feel like there's an opening to be able to discuss a few different things, whether it's training methods or just general sort of mental attitude towards things and um, I think we could just really sort of fill in a void there with um, sort of trying to get into that competitive set. Absolutely, yeah, no. That's what we aim. We're just giving as much value to you guys out there as we possibly can. Um, in today's first episode, we've got a pretty cool interview with a local identity from Scone, Linda McCallum, who is pretty pretty dominant in the cutting pen, and obviously she's got a lot to offer and tells us a bit about her challenges she's faced and how she got into it all. So be sure to listen into that. Thanks for joining us here at the 90 or Nothing podcast. Well, good morning, Linda, and thanks for being here. How are you going today? I'm very well, thanks, Paxton. Thank you for coming in today and giving us your insights. Thank you for having me. We are looking forward to um, hearing everything you have to say. Oh, well, I, I'm looking forward to it. It's, um, it's great. I love the initiative for the 90 or Nothing podcast. So, Linda, you grew up in... Uh, from this area and you've schooled here most of your life and did your uh, uni degree up in Armidale and just tell us a bit about your background I guess. Yeah well I um, was born in Scone, Paxton and um, my family owned a property and up at Tymore, my dad managed a property up there, Ballerine and I, I grew up up there and lived the good life I guess and riding horses and riding ponies and we used to go to pony club and I used to go and help my dad muster um, with my brothers and sisters, we all went through the same, I guess, introduction to the horse world. And it was a really great childhood. Uh, went to primary school and secondary school in the area. And then I went away to university to, um, I studied a Bachelor of Commerce yep. and did a graduate diploma of education at the end. I, I was lucky during that time. I had a great childhood. We, in pony club, I used to show ride, go to royal shows. And we used to do camp drafts and, and stock horse events. So it was a great introduction, I feel, to, to the performance horse world. And I had a really great foundation with what we used to do. So horses were always a fairly big sort of picture and part, like in your background growing up. For sure. I, um, I think Dad put me on my first horse when I was about two. And I used to go to pony club and go in the lead events. But we, we were mainly stock horse family. My dad loved stock horses. Um, and they were a big part of what I did. And I enjoyed it very much. I think it kept me very grounded. And um, I used to really work hard during the week so that I could go to events on weekends. And I, I wouldn't change it. I would still, you know, it was a great childhood and a great introduction. Yeah, I guess those stock horses were used for work at home, were they? Definitely. Yeah, they were. And it was a big sheep place, Ballerine, at that stage it was before we had the wild dog issues of today. Mm. But, um, yeah, we used to 
it would take us half a day basically to ride out to the back of the place and then we would leave the horses there and I'd go and help dad would drive up during the day and do our do our sheep work muster sheep or or do whatever and then um you know bring the horses down at the end of you know that that week that we used to do um but yeah they were a big part my dad he wasn't a fan at all really of quarter horses in fact my very first quarter horse I bought he said to me it'd make a good cart horse then so he was she, she was a bit heavy and um he wasn't a fan but um he tolerated it and tolerated my interests I guess as I as I went on and changed course later in life but yeah, it was a great foundation to 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 what I do now no doubt you'd be very proud now to see what you've achieved lately <laughs> yeah I um losing him was sad and I often think of him when I'm at events I would love that he was there last year when I had you know really successful maturity and um, this year when I was inducted into the Hall of Fame um, yeah makes me very I guess proud to be his daughter and my mum used to do a lot of the running around as well so but he was the horse person and um, I think he would be proud of um, what I'm achieving in the cutting world and what my sister Sue Duggan achieves in the camp draft world I know he would be um, front and centre, chest out. So I often think of him as I'm crossing the timeline, actually, and going in those finals. Absolutely, that's. Uh, I'm sure he'd be very inspirational in those moments. Yeah. Um, so you started, early, like earlier on, you started as a camp drafter predominantly, and then moved on to the cutting world. Yeah, well, I I guess I showed stock horses, and then we used to draft. And when I first, um, I, I used to draft. You know, my late teens, early twenties. And then when Jim and I got together, we used to draft. But my first introduction into cutting was through Tom Williamson. I uh, went to university with his wife, Jane. Oh, yeah. And um, Jane enjoyed the cutting. And we used to actually leave. We went to St Albert's College in Armidale. And when the futurity was on, it was at the old shed. And it was a fantastic time. You know, there was a party every night. They had a band. It was the best atmosphere. So when the futurity was on, we would go every night down to Tenworth and party all night and then drive back home to, to uni, go to uni during the day. And we did that for the whole week of the futurity when it was at the old showground in Tenworth. Loved it. Lo and behold, when Jane's there, she kind of met Tom. Yeah. And um, that's how they became um, first introduced to each other. Right. And so I was lucky enough... Um, at some stage, Tom gave me a ride on one more Playboy on the flag, on the mechanical cow. Yeah. And it was... A lot of people who are introduced to cutting say it's that feeling. You know, when you get that feeling, you just want it again. And that's what it was for me. The intensity, the desire, the athleticism, the fact that, you know, that instincts take over, it was an incredible feeling. So that's where I first became interested. And from that point... I knew I wanted to get involved um, and try and train cutting horses. Um, yeah, that's a really good introduction to it, I guess, helping one of the better size in this country. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And he was he was very athletic and he could really read a cow, one more playboy. Um, yep. He was very cow smart. And, um, yeah, so I was very lucky from there. I had a one more playboy filly right. that was a young filly at that time. So this was your first cutting horse? So, so yeah, so I would just had the kids and they were little, little babies. And so we couldn't go to camp drafts every weekend. It's just difficult when you've got little kids. And my my two children are very close together in age. They're only 15 months apart. Yep. And 
at that stage we lived in a pretty isolated area west of Scone and Jim would leave for work early in the morning and he wouldn't come home till late at night and I spent a lot of time by myself with two little babies and um, I struggled a lot with my kids from from going from teaching as I was before I had my children um, and, and competing with my horses to all of a sudden being quite isolated on my own during the days um, long days, little babies, as people know, they're not easy, lack of sleep, and I couldn't do what I wanted to do on my horses or in the garden. I felt limited, and I actually probably suffered a little bit of postnatal depression. Well, I did. And um, I had a young one more Playboy filly, and Tom encouraged me. He said, why don't you try and train her for the snaffle bit for charity? So that would, is what I did, and that was my goal. I had her, and I had an Acres Destiny gelding. And I would get up every morning before daylight when the kids were still asleep and before Jim left for work and I would go and work them on the flag and um, then I'd come back before he, he left for work. And um, I had an hour to myself every day mm. of doing my, my thing, achieving, working towards a goal and it kept me sane. Yeah. So um, it was a great thing for me at that time in my life and I guess that's where I started to, to build a foundation to, to you know, training horses like I do now, hand down. But um, I made a lot of mistakes. It was pretty rough and ready. But yeah, I, no doubt it was tough. It was on. tough. And um, my one more playboy filly was very cowy. She still competes, actually, up north in really? camp drafting. She's a, she's a really great mare. But um, she was so cowy. So, mm. And I, I just went with the cow. So I think we ended fifth in the... In the um, Futurity in the snaffle bit futurity. What year was that? Two thousand and nine. Yeah, okay. So. Yeah, ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. So she was, um, she was, yeah, she was a great little mare, and she, she did good things for me. And then I sold her through Landmark um, several years later for fifteen thousand dollars, and I just thought that was amazing that I could have trained a mare that I bred, you know, and um, and she she served a lot of purposes for me to keep me sane. Um, during that time when, when I had little kids and it was a struggle. And, um, yeah, then to sell her for $15,000. And that was, I guess, our start into what we do now. Yeah, well, what a great start it was into a pretty successful sort of little career out of it, I guess. A non-pro career, I guess, you'd call it. Yeah, that's right. And the thing that I loved about cutting when I first started was the people. I found it fascinating that I could ring any of the trainers, really, that I'd met through clinics or through people and ask for advice or go to them for a lesson and then it's so unique and it's the only sport I believe in the world where you have four coaches in that arena with you telling you what to do every step of the way in your two and a half minute run Mm. so I felt very supported in my efforts and encouraged in my efforts to have a go Mm. and that that sold it to me as well was just that level of support and professionalism I loved that yeah well these trainers like I guess it's in their best interest, but they always seem to be very motivational and like, you know, really wanting you to do your best in that sport, aren't they? They do. And they're, they're very deep thinkers themselves and they know how difficult it is. Mm. And you only have to sit and watch, you know, mistakes happen to the best of us, you know, and, and you sit and watch those guys and things happen. They get run over with two seconds to go or it's, it's a sport where you don't really stay at the top. You know, it's anyone's game on that day. But... They really um, do encourage new members and they do encourage um, new passionate um, horse people to, to come and have a go and it's very unique in that way. 
Yeah, well, I know a lot of the camp drafters always find a lot of, you know, interest in watching the cutting, and there's sometimes a lot of crossover within the sports, you know, we're sort of essentially looking for the similar bloodlines in some senses, and, you know, it's, it's, there's definitely a strong crossover between the two sports. Yeah, there is. That, that is for sure. And um, I think there's a lot of similarities between the two and they actually feed off each other. Mm. I think uh, quarter horses have changed a lot in type yep. in, our, in Australia. In what way would you say? I, I think they're a, they're a lot finer, you know, and they're a lot, um, they're quite an athletic build. Mm. And we often are looking for the same type of horse now. You know, once upon a time, they were quite a heavy, heavy stout, um, typical quarter horse. Traditionally, you know, you don't see those heavy stout horses as much in the USA either. Right. And I, but I think here in Australia, most people breed knowing that, you know, our industries are so closely related and we, we like a horse that's smooth traveling and can run, yeah. you know, well outside as well. It's just, it just comes down to athleticism and um, the ability, I guess, to think under pressure because both sports are very similar in that regard. Yeah, and I guess a lot of those cutters, once they have that strong foundation of, um, you know, of the cutting, they, they do later on sell to a lot of camp drafters, don't they? Definitely, yes, yeah. it definitely. And it is a market. One of our, um, I'm, I'm the vice president of the NCHA, yep. and one of the um, limiting factors that I do see with our sport is that for a lot of years, a lot of our trained horses were, were, went camp drafting. Mm. So for someone new into cutting who wanted to get a horse that they could go and do some weekend shows yep. or a rookie horse, they're very difficult to find uh -huh. because they're, they're being snabbled up by you know our camp draft market. And so why not? They've finished their aged events and now they're just an open horse and there's not many of them left is what, that, what you're saying. Yeah, they're really hard to find. Yeah, They're yep. really hard to find. We often talk about if... We, um, someone, one of our trainers has a new interested member who would like to go cutting. Finding that horse for that person is really difficult. And, and years gone by, you know, those horses got trained right through their aged event years, especially geldings. They mm. stayed, they were trained right through, and then that's the market that they went into with people interested in cutting. But now that often doesn't happen. Yeah. Usually... You know, by the time, well, Landmark's been a game changer. So often, yep. you know, people will sell their trained cutting horses when they're still in that classic age division. Mm -hmm. um, but at least, you know, by the time they're four or five, often um, these horses will will be sold to, into the camp draft market. I think it's just the foundation, you know, and, um, and the foundation in training. If I wanted to go yeah. camp drafting, the first one of the first horses we bought was a Tasselina mare named Tassament, and um, I wanted to take her drafting. Yeah. So we bought her out of futurity as yep. a three-year-old, and um, I took her to the AQHA finals. They had them at Canamble. Oh right. And um, I went out and I won the ladies' honour the next weekend. It was the most amazing feeling I had ever felt. She could just run a cow. She was natural, though. Yeah. And Jim and I both did well on her in the camp draft arena before we, um, you know, when we were still drafting. But um, she she just, she had great cow sense. She could really run a cow. And that foundation of being ridden every day, you know, right through her to her futurity year just set her up to, to go on and do what she did for us. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Are you tired at the camp drafts of sitting on the fence at finals time? Is it you or is it your horse? 
Well, lucky for you, at Camp Up Training Online, they provide you all the latest tips and training methods to get you in that final. Visit and subscribe www.campdrafttrainingonline.com.au Well, Linda, going back to the landmark sale, a few years ago you managed to buy a pretty handy little stallion called Metallic Storm. Uh, Why don't you just tell us a little bit more about him? Yes, so Jim and I purchased Metallic Storm in 2017 at the Landmark Classic sale. He was a two-year-old. We weren't particularly looking to buy a horse, but I had been talking to Tom and he said he really rated the horse. Um, He'd hurt himself, so um, he'd actually sustained an injury in the paddock. So he hadn't had the ideal preparation going into the sale. Um, He was pretty green. Um, And um, he was actually really green at the sale. And he... So I hung around. I looked at the horse. I loved his type. I loved his eye. It was Mm. one of the things I really loved about him. Um, And he was a very sensitive horse. And I really like sensitive horses. So I I actually left the sale after I'd sold my horses that year. Mm -hmm. And... But I had... um, Gav Beard, an agent in town here with Landmark, he was up there and he was on the phone um, and I couldn't believe it when we purchased him for $21,000. I thought it was, um, oh, I was very lucky to get him for that. Um, I didn't really want to stay in at all, but I, I just, I liked the horse. So that's, we kind of fell into him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we got him home and um, gave him his full program, training program. And um, I knew he was something special. He just always had a great way of thinking Mm. he was very mature probably for his age and he just wanted to do it and horses like that are just good horses they make your job easier he 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 made me realize that um you know he he makes you feel like you're a lot better trainer than you probably are (laughs) because because he's uh, you know for where i was at at that stage you know he um he just wanted to do it and he he mechanically the way he move maneuvered his body and you know the way he could um turn him he, you know inside out to stay with the cow he loved his job and um he made it he made it easy yeah okay so he did early on he showed some really you know good stuff that you thought well we've got a really you know impressive horse underneath us here yeah for sure and horses like that make like it's it's exciting to go and train your horses every day. It's yep. something that you really enjoy. Mm. And he is such a smooth traveling horse. He's a beautiful horse to ride. You know, you go mustering or do whatever. He's a really smooth traveler. So um, yeah, we I felt from very early that um, that he was quite unique and very special. Mm. It's best horse I'd had. Put yep. it that way. And you'd never owned a stud previous to that. So how did you go about sort of dealing with that sort of situation? I I had to ask a lot of people for advice yeah. um, because I hadn't owned a stud and I know it's very unique and I think I've teetered from time to time um, from being too soft to being too hard on him. He's very sensitive. He never forgets a thing. So, you know, you, you can't be into him all the time or he, he just never forgets it. Um, so there's a really fine line probably with that and I've had to get a lot of advice from different people um Todd Graham gave me some great advice one day um even on the weekend I've just come back from the Victorian Futurity and um oh one of my friends said ask Troy Randall he's a trainer from Victoria his dad had a lot of studs and he's a great guy with studs so I've had some great conversations with him about studs so I'm still learning and it's been a great 
a, a big learning curve. And I guess all studs are different, mm. but um, but yeah, I've enjoyed it, but it's been a challenge. In his preparation, what would you do differently to say just a, your average mare, you know? Um, I, I couldn't stand on him every time for his instincts. Yeah. He was a horse that, you know, he still has to be a horse. And if I did start to stand on him every time for a little nicker at a mare or, you know, I didn't want him to be crazy and out of control, but he would never forget things and he would start to um, resent me a little. Um, he, when I'm on his back, he is, um, so now he's on the ground, he's brilliant. And he always has been good on the ground, but um, I never have laid into him on the ground either. On his back, he's incredibly sensitive and he has, um, he's a horse that I've really struggled to use my feet on. Yep. Um, he, I always can just only use my calves. He really is very sensitive to your feet. And I've tried to go through that with him. Like I've tried to, you know, use my feet and use my um, spurs. I've, like, I've, just, I've just got to numb him out to it, desensitise him to it. And, you know, it, it gets to a point where you just can't go through that every day. He just, he didn't, he, he works on instinct and, yep. um, and I just have to be there to support him, I guess, um, with, with what we do and, my aids to him are very slight, very, very minimal. So, um, you know, I, I just I just basically use my calves and it's the slightest release for a stop and, and you know, the slightest release for a turn. Um, he's, he's a really, really um, sensitive sided horse and very soft horse in the mouth as well. So he actually works best when I just work him in a snaffle. Um, you don't need gear on him. Um, he... he You've got to remind him, don't get me wrong, but um, he's a very sensitive horse with gear, with feet, with all that type of thing. You just don't need it. Yeah. Well, he's certainly very successful in the show pen anyway. Yeah. I've been lucky with him. It's um, It's been an amazing journey probably um, with how we come about him and then... Um, well, you had a very successful futurity year with him. Um, what, why, but there was... A, in the lead up to the futurity, you were diagnosed with your illness, um, MS. Um, how did he sort of help you, I mean, inspire you or motivate you to get you there to the futurity? Yeah, it was, when I think back to it, Paxton, I just, it's quite eerie and I, I just, things happen for a reason. Yeah. I'm a big believer that things happen for a reason. And I'd given him a really solid program from, from the time I bought him right through till when I, um, you know, to the futurity. So he hadn't had a lot of time off. We just work him every day. He always had fresh cattle. In the April of, so it was Easter 2018, last year, I was at a cutting event in Armadale and um, I started to get a really funny taste in my mouth. Yeah. Um, and I thought, oh, this is weird. And I just felt really unwell headaches and I felt really just I, I I still competed I had a great successful show I won the open derby that year on get hawky but I was sick Golly. and um I I would go to bed really early and and we got through the show I come home that week and I was repacking to go to another show that next weekend at North Star and my left side of my face went numb one day and I thought oh, I think I'm having a stroke 
So I um, loaded myself into the car, which you probably shouldn't when you think you're having a stroke, and drove myself to town to go to the hospital because oh, wow. no one was around. And, um, yeah, they just said I had a virus. But long and short of it is I was backwards and forwards to doctors trying to get some answers for feeling so unwell for six weeks. And um, two weeks before the futurity, I collapsed and lost the use of my left side altogether and ended up in John Hunter Hospital. And it was then that they found, um, they did some scans and, yeah, diagnosed me with um, multiple sclerosis. So it was weird. I was relieved that I had a diagnosis mm. because I because your symptoms aren't visible. Often, um, you know, people will say, you look so great and you feel so bad. And yep. it's, it's very hard that way. I find I find the illness really hard that way, mentally. Um, and I thought I was making it up. So I was relieved that I'd, I had a diagnosis and I knew something was going on. But then it just started the next challenge, I guess, of, of where we go to from there. Um, so I spent three days in John Hunter having treatment for uh, my symptoms at that time. And then... Um, and, and as part of the diagnosis, they do a lumbar puncture. Mm. And when they do a lumbar puncture, um, you know, they, they take fluid from your spine to try and work out if the MS is in your spine. Right. So um, I came home after three days in John Hunter and we knew we had the futurity two weeks later. We'd only just entered metallic storm in the open futurity the day I collapsed. You can't get your money back. We've made a huge investment. We had a team of five horses going to Tamworth. So, and I am, was very unwell. Mm. So Jim was riding the horses for me. He said, I'll ride a few. And when I got home that afternoon, he said, I'll work the colt, come over and watch. We had some friends here and some family um, that were helping me because I was so unwell. I was so, they were so supportive. I was very lucky. But I went over to watch Jim and he worked the colt. And um, being a little, I guess, bit um, of a control freak, Yep. I said, let me on him. <laughs> and I worked him. And I was so unwell, I worked him. And as a result of that, um, I ended up with a leaking lumbar puncture site. So I ended up back in John Hunter. It was just a disaster. Um, and they told me when I went back that I shouldn't be riding and I'll never ride again. And um, I was shattered. But anyway, I came home. Um, I had a week on the bed like I was meant to before. And um, then with five days to go, Jim said, let's just work the horses and we'll go and see what happens. So I started very gingerly to work horses. I would just hop on and ride. Um, everyone else did the other work for us. Um, and we ended up in Tamworth. Leading up to that stage, I, I of course, I was devastated and um, I didn't want to go. And Jim said to me, you have to go. We've got a really special horse. You have to go. And I said... I just don't think I can. What if I never ride again? I don't think I can do this. And Jim said, Linda, what is your horse's name? I said, Metallic Storm. He said, what, what? He said, tell me the acronym. It was MS. Yeah. And it was really, it was eerie. And I thought, right, he's been sent to me for a reason. Things happen for a reason. So um, we yeah. just went and showed. And at that event, um, we had a really crazily successful futurity last year um we had um our caitlin smith and sarah caslick did all the work with jim for me um and i'd just hop on a ride and i'd go to bed and i'd hop on a ride and i just felt so lucky to be there 
and be there and competing, um, I was just totally in the in the zone. I didn't think about anything else except the fact I was there. And I think that all just come together to get me in a really good headspace mm. to, to just hop on and write. And that's exactly what I did. Didn't overthink anything. And, um, you know, we come away with $80,000 in prize money and reserve champion open for charity. And, you know, we I think we had won five buckles, won the Nam Pro Classic. It was an amazing year. And um, I had a great group of horses and a great team around me. So I was very lucky. Yeah, it certainly um, sounds like... Um, Jim and the two girls you had working for you were like a bit of a backbone, I guess, behind the scenes, you know? Definitely, definitely. And 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 from that time onwards, you know, Jim's always been incredibly encouraging, but, um, and he he is the motivation most, a lot of the time. Um, I go through periods where I am unwell and then I am fine, but I'm really working hard to get myself in a space where, where the fine, when I'm, I'm well, becomes you know there's longer periods between that and when I have a sick day um because it's it's fine while I'm at home and working my horses but when I go to shows it's um I I struggle if I have a day where I'm unwell at a show because if I've you know got to hop on a ride and I can't feel my legs um I find that personally um a real challenge yeah and mentally a real challenge um it makes me a bit you know it makes me upset that to think I've put in all that work and then I can't execute on that day. But um, we were putting in some strategies into place to try and make that um, you know, fewer and far between. Yeah, well, I mean, cutting in general is such a tough sport to get right, like every run to get right. It's just impossible, let alone going down there not knowing if how you're going to feel that day. Like it's just – we find it absolutely incredible that you're able to go down there and give it your all each time. Like it's a very inspirational sort of way. Yeah, thanks, Pax. I don't think about it too much. I just, um, I want to make the most out of every well day I have. And I know I've got more well days in front of me than I do unwell days. And, um, and I just need, I have to work, I do a lot of personal work, personal development work to help me during those times when it's not going to plan. Um, so, you know, I've just come back from the Victorian Futurity. I finaled Metallic Storm in the non-pro derby. And on that day, out of the whole week, I was unwell. Mm. And um, I I had to get um, someone to lift me on him that day because of of the final, because I couldn't feel my legs. And um, I just hopped on and rode. I didn't ride him like I would normally. Mm. I, I know I didn't. I didn't execute like I would normally. Um, I couldn't capitalise on the situation, but I still showed him and I still got fifth. Yeah. So it wasn't a disaster. Incredible feat. But it makes me, um, you know, th- those type of days, I-, I hope I become less. Yeah, certainly be tough on you. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, moving forward, I guess you've got um, plenty of young ones for next year. Uh, what's the sort of, you know, program you've put them on at the moment? Well, at the moment, I have three for next year, three three-year-olds. Um, I have a Rockin' W filly out of One Hell of Spin. Yep. And I have a Boon Too Soon gelding out of Windredean Whiskey Cat. Oh. And a Smooth as a Cat filly out of Windredean Whiskey Cat. Yep. Um, I feel as far as breeding, I've probably got the best team of horses I've had. Yeah. Um, however... They're probably not as far as long as I would like, so I've got a lot of work in the next 10 months to get <laughs> me back to Tamworth. 
Um, the Rock and W we've only just purchased six weeks ago. Yeah. And but she is incredibly talented. Mm. Um, very very cow smart. Yeah. And she she at this point when I ride her, I really really like her. Yeah. Um, she feels like she's something special. Um, I really like my Boon Too Soon gelding. He's incredibly athletic. Mm. And um, my smooth as a cat filly really thinks about a cow well. So they've all got attributes that, um, you know, I just need to chip away, keep working them every day. We have this mantra here is it's just don't think, just work horses. Yeah. Especially if there's a a tough day going on or Jim has to get away for work or something. Mm. It's just like, let's just get up and go through the motions. Don't think, just work horses. Sometimes I think... um, you know, when, when, when you go to the arena and there's, um, pressure from external sources or, um, you know, a lot of, um, if you just bring other, um, issues into the arena or emotions into the arena, it, it affects the work. I'm a true believer in that. So I just have this thing now where I just, um, I just don't think just work horses, just let instincts take over and just get down there and get a work under their belt and, um, they're better for it. Jim has, he believes that to become great at something, it takes 10,000 hours. <laughs> so every hour we tick off, we always say, you know, that's another hour towards our 10,000 hours. Oh I've never God. counted my hours, <laughs> so I don't know if I've done 10,000. Oh, I'd that'd be up there. Yeah, working towards it. And it's, it's, you know, it's now. It's every single work you have on every single different horse. Mm. And, and that's why Todd Graham is so good at what he does because yep. he can ride every type of horse he thinks outside the square. He can change his training program to suit the horses. And um, he, he, he is the master at capitalising in that moment. Yeah. And, um, and I really respect him and look up to him for, for what he can achieve in that time. So, so yeah, so that's my team for next year. And um, we'll, I, I enjoy this time of year. I Actually, it's my favourite time of year yeah. from now through till... Um, you know, early next year when the shows start, when you're just at home working horses and you see these three-year-olds just come along in leaps and bounds, it's fantastic. Yeah, I'd imagine it'd be interesting. Like sometimes the horse you thought may, you know, really be there isn't there that week, but then the following week he may be there or, you know, vice versa. Like does that definitely play a part when you've got three, you know, pretty capable horses underneath you? Definitely. They change all the time. And, And it's... I actually feel really lucky to be a non-pro in that I just train what I've got and I have the capability to breed or buy a horse that I think will suit me mm-hmm. and um, I'm not like, it, I admire the professional trainers, you know, they'll start 30 to 42 year olds and they have to make a decision back, you know, at, at you know, at the start of their um, two-year-old year, they yeah. have to make a decision of what horses they're going to go on with mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And horses can change so much. Mm. So um, being a non-pro, I have three and that's all I've got to choose from and I need to get them trained yeah. because that's a part of our business and that's what we do. So um, I have to learn to adapt, I guess, to each horse and know that they'll change and there'll be good works and there'll be bad works and there'll be days where I'm pulling my hair out and there'll be days where I'm on all fours in the arena crying and then there'll <laughs> be days where it's been a great work yeah. and um, I, can, I can just enjoy them for what they are. But when you cross that timeline in Tamworth of a three-year-old year, no matter, you know, what the outcome, you know that, that it's been an achievement regardless. Yeah, absolutely. You put so much work into them and, and um, it's, 
you know, that is horse training, isn't it? It doesn't, it's never at a steady level. You're never at that one pace. Like it's always changing and you always go through a wave of emotions, but it seems to be about how you control them and funnel that to, you know, produce something great is, you know, that's who ultimately will come away with the, with the win. <laughs> Definitely. And I feel like it's um, those people who can keep their training um, systems consistent, you know, and they, and they, they don't have those up and down periods or they, they just they just go and chip away and alter things slightly and and you know, just just turn up. That's yep. all you gotta do, I think, is turn up every day in that arena. Whether mm. it's five minute work because you don't have a lot of time when you're a non pro you've got other things you have to do. Or whether you can spend time that day. Um, I have a flag day on Tuesdays because um, Jim's always at the sale yards. So I'll have a flag day and I usually take a lot longer to work my horses on that day because I I can, I do a lot of my, um, I guess, body control work and softening work. And um, I right. still, I still love to have my horses collected and collected on my feet and, you know, be able to, um, you know, f- flow nicely from their transitions. It's just, I guess, comes from my foundation of my show riding and that type of thing. Yep. So I still spend a lot of time, especially on Tuesdays on, on that type of thing. Um, and then I'll, and then I'll flag them all. But, um, you know, that's just a part of our program and that's just what I do. But those days to me are just as important as the days where, you know, we work cows or in summer we'll work late at night or early in the morning. And, and sometimes when it's hot, you just it's just a matter of getting it done. Yeah, so it's not like you, it doesn't always have to be perfect. You just have to get started. <laughs> I agree. It's just, it's just getting there and doing it. It yep. doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to have... The stables cleaned, you know, I know a lot of people love that, but some days for us, the achievement is just when we've got a lot of us stuff going on, we've got our kids, we've got our place to run, we're in the middle of a drought. The achievement is just to put a saddle on their back and get in that arena and do something. Yeah. You know, it's it's just turning up. Yeah, because, you know, if you don't turn up each day, the next person down the road has and, you know, you get that day behind, don't you? Exactly. Well, ever you, that day you're not riding them, everyone else is. And, um, yeah, you do end up probably not with the article that you would really like. Um, I've also got my breakers back from the um, Abe Graham broke them in this year. I've got a metallic capped filly out of Fay Ray and I have a light and leaner filly um, out of a mare called Lethal Rose. And um, they're two exciting mares and I'm looking forward to... Um, I'll give them a good few months now as well and just start chipping away with them, try and get them, you know, a long way down the track. Yeah. Um, I don't have to choose what I'm going to train and what I'm not like the pro trainers do. Yeah. So I'll just, um, I'll just keep working them. I'll train them regardless. So you like to have leading up to most futurities ha- um, each year, have two or three prospects for it or like two or three horses for it? Yeah, Jim and I do. It's yep. a part of our business model, I guess, of how we've set this up. Um, for years we have uh, purchased um, young, young horses we like to have two or three yep. and that way um, we train what we can, um, we, we sell a few at the end of it. Um, this year it just so happened I sold all my three-year-olds, I don't have any left. Um, sometimes I'll keep one one to keep showing through the aged events yep. um, and, and it just gives us options mm. in that way. Um, I do believe this is, it's, it's an expensive sport but it is also a numbers game. In a certain degree, if I've got two or three entered and I'm going to cross the timeline on a couple, the chances, you know, of me 
having a different draw or being in a different herd, mm. you know, you, you just kind of, um, you've got more than one shot. Increased chance of winning. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And it's, it's not easy to have more than one in an event. You've got to have more people to help you get them ready. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, it, and it's quite expensive when you get to the show. But um, it's, I always say to people, people often talk to me about the expense of cutting. However, I believe when I was carting six or eight horses to a draft mm. and going to one nearly every weekend, I Jim and I have done the figures and we don't believe that it's too much difference to us just taking our horses to, we probably go to six cutting shows a year. Yeah. Um, and but it's the work we do at home, and we have a, you know, pretty high value animal at the end of it. Yeah. Um, that that we can capitalize on. So, I guess it's just how you look at it, and it's what time you want to put into it. And um, it I never planned to be training horses like I am. It just happened, but I love it, and I feel very blessed to be able to do it. Yeah, no, you're certainly doing an amazing job. When you go to um buy these young stock from certain people what are you what are you looking for like are you looking for just the breeding alone or are you looking for the type or just walk us through the process you undergo when you purchase one of these younger yearlings or weanlings or whatnot breeding is a big part um jim loves to breed cattle and he's um and i think a lot of the um the what we're looking for is the same really is when we breed cattle so genetics is a huge part of it and um we do like that strong dam line which um we try and chase the strong dam line i think it does give you um just increases your chances and it also at the other end of it when we want to sell horses you know if they're out of a well-known mare or it definitely um increases their market value right um i like it i I guess I've always been a bit of a sucker for a pretty horse. So yeah. I definitely type is a big thing for me. Mm. Um, I like that they're in proportion. You yeah. know, I like them to have a strong hip. I like them to be strong through the stifles. I like their hocks to be close to the ground. I re- um, um, I like them to have some weather. Mm. And I really love them to have good angle in their shoulder and yeah. for their, their neck to come out of their shoulder, you know, um, really well. Because I think, you know, that, that elevation in the front, um, it helps them be able to uh, move their front end when it comes to cutting, but it also assists them when, you know, if they go camp drafting to be able to cover the ground and flow nicely. Mm. So um, I like horses with a bit of size. It doesn't always happen. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for what we do for the market, they do have to have a bit of size. Anything 14.3 above is fine for me. Yeah. And um, and I really pay a lot of attention to... I like them to be thin-skinned because usually the thin-skinned horses are a little feelier. Yeah. And I like a, um, a little bit of feel. Um, I like them not to be too deep in the mouth. Um, okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, Ian Francis once said that to me, that horses that um, you know, are quite deep in the mouth, often um, their angles differ when... Um, when you you know when you're trying to teach collection and round if they're nice and shallow in the mouth, it was his his experience anyway that um, they um often ended up the softer horses. Wow, right. And softer in the face, and I know that doesn't always happen. There are exceptions to the rule, but yeah. um, you know they're all things that we consider. Certainly look for when yeah. we look when we're trying to buy horses. The other thing that I like I pay a lot of attention to is just their look in their eye and their presence. Yeah. The good ones have a presence. Yeah. You know, um, and that's metallic storm, that's he has a beautiful eye. 
Yeah. And very intelligent um, eye and a very intelligent head. And um, I pay a lot of attention to that. Yeah. I think their demeanour when you go into the stable, if you're at a sale or their demeanour in the paddock, it tells you a lot. Yeah, I certainly can relate to that. You know, when you're standing you know, on the side and watching or standing next to a horse and you can almost, those great horses that come up next to you, they almost have a bit of a, like a presence and they sort of say, hey, like, look out, I'm, I'm walking through here. Like they're just, they've got that sort of, you know, alter about them, I guess. Definitely. And I don't think it matters what horse sport you're into. You know, no. you, you go and you back a racehorse and you watch them in the mounting yard. Yeah. They're the horses that draw my attention Yeah. every time. And, and some people are really clever at picking Horses just based on that, yeah. on the look in their eye. I've been to races with, um, you know, certain people in our industry and, and they, they pick the winner just based on the look in their eye. Yeah. Whether they're there, ready, they're settled and um, they have that presence that, that's going to be able to bring it when it comes down to, to over that last 100 metres to the finish line. Mm, absolutely. Uh, no, it certainly plays a big part. I um, completely agree with you. Um, furthermore, what would you... What would be your, be your advice to, you know, people that may not have any involvement in cutting yet but sort of want to get involved and, and you know, looking to get um, get into that market somehow? Like what, what would you say to them? How would it be a good way to go about it? Um, so I think it depends on your background and where you come from. You know, I I did it by training my first snaffle bit for Charity Horse and yep. um, I think a lot of um, people in this day and age have have the resources around them to be able to um, get assistance from trainers um, and get some lessons with a young horse. They may already have the horse already, you mm. know, that they've bred. So they've got the bloodlines. Yeah. Um, it's just getting the knowledge, I guess. And there's a lot of um, knowledge out there online with cutting horse training online where, you know, you can get that support. It's nothing like going to a clinic or getting regular lessons yeah. um, and, and, being able to have the access to a facility with with cattle and an arena um, and, and a mechanical cow, you know, that's vital to start from that end. So that's the way I started. I often say I wish I hadn't started that way because right. I, although I do think it has paid dividends now in that, you know, I started training my own horses rather than if I had stepped on a really well-trained horse and got the feeling of what it should feel like, yeah. I probably would have saved myself a lot of heartache and maybe a couple of years in my process, you know, right. because right. I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't yep. know what it should feel like. Um, I didn't know how much I needed to slow it down. And, you know, when you come from camp drafting is, um, you know, it's traditionally, there's a lot more speed involved. Yeah, it's fast-paced. It's fast-paced. Yeah. And um, a mentor of mine in this sport told me, 10 years ago, he said, darling, you're never going to get any good at this until you need to stop drafting for a while because yeah. I just rushed everything. Yep. Everything was too quick. I needed to slow down. So I did mm. give it up. And I haven't drafted for 10 years, but I'm ready to start now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to have another run. But um, I think that definitely helped me. But I, if someone was interested in getting into the sport um, and you possibly you know, didn't have a young one that was bred to be able to, you know, go cutting and you didn't have a facility, mm. I would definitely suggest um, getting a mentor in the sport, whether it is a non-pro that you respect and can get advice from or a pro trainer that, um, you know, they're invaluable to, to our industry and you can get some lessons and get advice, find a good horse, well-trained horse that you can just go and enjoy. Yeah. Um, I think that that is 
the ideal way to start in cutting. Yeah, because, I mean, these cutting trainers, they're very approachable, like, to go up to. And if you're interested the slightest bit, they'll, you know, they're more than happy to, you know, give the time and tell you as much as they can, aren't they? They are. And then when you go to your first event and you cross that timeline, they will talk you through every single step of the run. Yeah. And, you know, left foot here, right foot there, you know, angle up into the cow. They they still, my corner guys, still talk me through my cuts so often. They still talk me through my cuts. So, you know, just slow up there, wait right now. You know, and and it's um it's invaluable, mm. and um it's the difference between staying out of the penalty box and, and getting in the winner's circle, or and getting cut clean, you know, to to not being able to execute when you've done the work to get there. So, the cutting trainers and a lot of trainers in general, they are very supportive and very approachable, and um are only too willing to to help new people who are keen to get started in the sport. Yeah, no, well, that's really good to hear. And also, you, you've been over to the States a couple of times, have you? Um, just touch on about, you know, what your experience was over like there and, and the horse calibre there and the trainers there and, you know, pretty much, you know, the general NCHA over there. Yeah, it's um such a big industry. Yeah. It's such a big industry. And I've been on the Australian team um, twice when it's gone over there for the Australian USA non-pro challenge. Yeah. Fantastic experience, mm. a lot of fun, um, but definitely um, seeing the calibre of horse flesh. And um, I think we have a similar calibre here, but we just probably don't have as many in that high end. Yeah. And um, that's what I think really makes um, the standard of cutting in the USA so high is the number of good horses that are there. I love the way that, um, you know, when you go to the Futurity or an Aged event, those guys aren't just showing through the go-rounds just to survive. Yeah. And sometimes I feel that happens um, here a little bit. It's a matter of survival to make a final, and then they bring it in a final. Yeah. Over there, they show the heck out of those horses in every single run. Right. And it's such a great feeling. And that's what makes it so competitive, I guess. You know, you have to be that bit, you know, a bit more to make the final. Definitely. And, yeah. um you know, they they don't miss a day. Yeah. They never miss a day. I went and spent spent some time with John Mitchell at Slate River Ranch. Right. And um, the la- a couple of years ago, I went and stayed for two weeks after we had been over there for the challenge. Um, Jim came home and um, I went to learn. And um, I get the, I'd got there the afternoon before at about 8 o'clock and um, I, I, I had a message at 1 a.m. Are you up? Let's go. I was like, right. So got up and so from then on, you know, every morning we were up 1, 2 a.m. over at the barn working horses and it was just, and then um, we went to a, sh- there was a show on um, in the last week that I was there. So then we'd get up, work every horse before we went to the show, then go to the show all day. Oh my gosh. So, and, and they'll say, you know, it's next level. Um, I was talking to um I was talking to someone, the oh, Hayden Upton, when he was out here last, and he was talking about how, you know, just the level of commitment mm. of all those trainers and, and what they bring every single work to the work on their horses, that's what makes them so good. And he said that like, he was has been out on, um, he was at a bachelor night with um, Jesse Lennox. Yeah. And they'd been out all night. And, um, you know, everyone was feeling pretty dusty by the, by the time it was time to go home. And yeah. Jesse went home and worked his horses. Wow. So, and he never misses. Yeah. So I just, I just 
I find it so admirable. I love that level of professionalism and dedication. Yeah. I find it um, one of the greatest attributes of the sport. Yeah, that's something I just can't even comprehend how hard they must work to get that, you know, that result. Yeah, and they, you know, they're seven days most, seven days a week. Oh. Um, and every week of the year. And, but the level of facilities that they have, you know, and, and their staff, it, it makes it very achievable. Um, you know, they have great staff around them that can catch, feed, saddle, hose off. Yeah. They literally just really have to turn up. Oh, because there's a hell of a lot of stuff behind the scenes that goes into a cutting horse program. Like, you know, the riding at the end of the day is nearly the last part, isn't it? Yeah, like... definitely. Keeping them well. You know, horse health is, is huge. And um, it's it's really important from, from everything, from your farrier to the, you know, formalised, specialised diet mm. and, you know, to your supplement program. Um, and... I think that is improving. The technology in all those areas is improving all the time as well. Yeah. Well, I guess they are professional athletes when you look at it. Like, they are at the top of their game, those animals. Yeah, and they they have to feel well to be able to perform at, the, at their highest level. And um, they have... I was actually discussing it with a few trainers last week at Victoria at the Futurity, and we're talking about how here we go through our aged event program mm-hmm. and now... Almost these horses um, were saying, you know, they, they were almost at the end of their age event program. They're a little bit tired. It would be great to give them some time off. And then we branched into, well, in America, they don't get time off. They mm. just go to the next show and they keep going to the next show and the next show. And we we're saying, how do they do that? Yeah. Some horses, of course, have to be out for a period of time. But yeah. I find that fascinating is how do they, how do they keep going to the next show? And, and one horse had done something. It was hauling for the world's. And we were discussing it. The amount of shows that horse had done for a year, or something like 60 shows Golly. You know, for the year. Yeah. Because they would just go from one show to the next and two shows in the weekend because they were hauling for the worlds. And um, their rehab is very um, strong over there. Right. They have an equine spire at every event. And um, the horses can often, you know, the lopers will take the horses, cool them down, and then they'll go to the spa. Wow. And, um, and, and it's really important because it will um, ice their legs, basically, but it's really efficient, you know, ice. They stand in there and it's, it's um, you know, at a very, very, very cold temperature and um, it just brings all the information down that they may be experiencing their ice. We, we ice our horses' legs with ice boots. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it just I, isn't as efficient yeah. and doesn't have the same result as their equine spa does. And they have... Um, they have places where they can take the horses just for rehab so if my horse sustained a suspensory injury yeah um, i could take my horse there and leave it for two weeks and every you know three four times a day it's treated in a different way to get that suspensory right for the next show that's incredible that's really amazing Mm. yeah no i didn't we just don't understand a lot of us don't understand the scale of how big it actually is over there you know yeah, it's a big industry and um, there's a lot to learn from them and um, every time I think it's really important to keep going and, and keep yourself sharp and um, I really, that's one thing as a non-pro that um, I feel like is a slight disadvantage in that a lot of our pro trainers can go over there and catch ride yeah. at the futurity yeah. um, and you know, they love doing that and they learn so much and they get access to great genetics when they do that Um might buy horses to bring home yes yeah. for me to go and show it for Trudy, i need to make a purchase mm. and um if i want to go and purchase 
at this stage before the futurity, which is, you know, the start of December, um, if I want the good horse, I'm looking at a couple hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. And that's the horse I want. Yeah, you don't want to be there on the average one. Yeah, I don't (laughs) want to go there and be on an average one. So um, the only other way for someone like myself to do it would be to buy a yearling and um, then have it trained, which you're not sure what kind of horse you're going to end up at at the end. But... um, but it's certainly a fascinating industry over there, and yeah. um, and plenty of Australians get to in and I guess enjoy it and involve and learn mm. every single year. Yeah, well, a few, there's been a few Australians go over there and and set up their own businesses, I guess, over there, and and have become very successful. As you mentioned, John Mitchell, he's you know doing extremely well over there. Sorry, one last night actually. Yes, he did. Yeah, he won the Derby at Brazos mm. and. Um, you know, you got Sean and Eddie Flynn and, yep. and Hayden and Spud Sheen. Um, and what I love about all those guys is they're still so willing to help Aussies and, and you know, give back whenever we go over there. Um, Andrew Coates is one. He's on, mm-hmm. on the West Coast there in California. And um, every time we have been to the Australia-USA Challenge, he, he still... He still gives his heart and soul to the Australian team and, yeah. you know, wants to help out. And um, they're very willing to be free with their knowledge of... When I went over there last time, um, Morgan Cromer, she was a fantastic... I had a couple of conversations with her and she's a very inspirational lady and, and woman yeah. trainer. Um, and, um, yeah, there's so much to learn and, and it's such a big industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we've heard a lot about the cutting life, but sort of... What I know, and I know it consumes most of your life. But what sort of other ventures do you do, or you know, to let down and you know to take your mind off it? Like, what are some of your other hobbies or something? Yeah, well, um, we have a place on King Island, so our cattle um, operation is down there. So Jim often heads to King Island for a couple of weeks at a time. Yeah, I unfortunately can't get there as often, especially with the horses. Mm. It's just difficult to get away for two weeks here and there if I'm trying to train three-year-olds. Um, yeah. It just can't happen. So Jim will head down there. I uh, enjoy time with the kids. That's one thing. My son Peter plays a lot of cricket. Yeah. So we are about to start um, embarking on travelling around the countryside with him to um, carnivals and, and rep cricket and... Um, and, and weekend games and he will go to Sydney on Sundays this summer. So it's going to be a pretty busy summer. But yeah. I enjoy cricket. Yeah. I didn't grow up in a cricketing family <laughs> and um, I just happened to marry a cricketer. But um, I really enjoy watching Pete play cricket. And I think one of the reasons I enjoy it is that it is forced relaxation for me. Yeah. I don't sit still very well. <laughs> and when I'm at the cricket, I have to. I, I get my folding chair and, you know, I, I'm forced to sit. Sit and, sit and watch and yep. I'll get the paper and I'll get a coffee and yeah. um, whether it's a morning you know Saturday morning game or a carnival where we're there all day um, I've grown to really really love that time mm. um, it's it's been great so I've also with um, my diagnosis I have been forced to make a lot of lifestyle changes yeah and where once I would never um, I didn't sit well with with having you know a slow period of time mm. i like to be busy all the time um i now have to have those times when i i do just stop yeah so you know if we've been really busy we might have it an afternoon we say right our kids we're going to have movie afternoon yeah yeah and and Definitely. do things like that and um you know we like to take the kids away for a few days if we can to the beach uh, i really enjoy those times and um yeah being together with the family it's yeah. I feel very lucky to 
I guess if we could get some rain, yeah. we would um, we'd be in a place where we could enjoy all of it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sitting down with us, Linda, and coming to the studio. And um, I'm sure everyone will really appreciate your story and what you've given us. And um, yeah, we wish you good luck for the rest of the season and next year at the Futurity and, and, and the years after that. Thank you, Paxton. Well, thanks for everyone that listened to that podcast and interview with Linda McCallum. Certainly got a lot out of that, that's for sure. Um, at the end of every episode or interview, I guess, we're going to do three main takeaways from what we sort of gathered from that interview. And Well, my first one today from Linda was that everyone does face challenges, whether it be physical or mental, so really don't be afraid to take them on and you know, really grip them as much as you can. My second one was, if you are looking to get involved into the cutting industry, take Linda's advice, contact a trainer, and get a horse. You know, a little bit of advice that I've always been told is, it doesn't have to be perfect, just get it started. So make sure you definitely get into that. And then my third little takeaway I thought of today was how horses can be so influential and inspirational to us. You know, uh, her horses throughout her life, especially Metallic Storm, have been very inspirational to her and you know got her motivated to do you know beat her challenges and whatnot yeah so what did you think of the interview Kylie? I really enjoyed listening to Linda she has so much passion for the sport and encouraging others just really inspirational have so much respect for her and how she is as a competitor and her horses and um, yeah great interview Paxton well done yeah no I thought it went really well Going on to our next episode, what do we got in store, Kylie? Uh, next episode, I'm actually going to do my partner, Ben Tat. He is a two-times Warwick Gold Cup winner, and Warwick's just around the corner in a few weeks' time, and um, everyone's gearing up for that sort of northern run, and I just sort of feel, you know, he's nice and close, and we'll, he's got both those two Warwick Gold Cup winning mares on the truck. So um, I think he'd be just really good. He's got an interesting life story, and, um, yeah, I think we'll cover him and... It should be quite a good story. Yeah, no, I can't wait. Definitely be tuning in to our next episode of the 90 or Nothing podcast to get all the latest news from our Manila identity, Ben Tapp. Thank you.